Right, latest faculty faith story where I'm joined by Peter Adele from Melbourne in Australia. Currently? Uh, no longer. I, I, I moved out of Melbourne just as COVID struck. So I now live in Newcastle, Australia. You have no idea where Newcastle, Australia is. Where is that close to? It's it's two hours to the north of Sydney. So I'll road towards Brisbane, but much closer to Sydney. People will be getting their Google Maps out and trying to work out where that is. Um, Peter, I first met ooh, 20, 20 plus years ago when I, I very kindly stayed with him when I was preparing for my PhD. So um, always great to, to see Peter again. But uh, let's get on to your faculty face story. So where are we start? We're starting generally down under. Um, but what's the, what's the context for your journey as a, as a man, as a as a Christian? Well, I've I've spent a significant part of my life, well, obviously in Australia, but also outside Australia. Uh, I grew up in Australia. My formative years were in Australia. Um, did all my schooling, my university in Australia. Um, I had my faith formation uh, in Australia, although that that really was came into it went from being knowing about faith to to having a, a living knowing faith uh, overseas but i've spent quite a bit of time overseas as well so i've spent uh, well probably the best part of 15 years in britain i lived in israel i lived in indonesia as well so it's been a been a mixed bag in terms of where i've lived so uh, we'll have to explore some of that but f family christian growing up Yes, so I, I was born into exactly into a Christian family. We we lived in a in a very small country town, um, north of Newcastle, actually. Um, so if you think on the map, you think of Sydney. You travel about five hours north, and you come to a small town called Wingham, and there is a Wingham in in England, of course. Uh, and I grew up there. It was a small town of three thousand people. It was a classic New South Wales country town. Um, lovely, good people, good sincere people. Um, um, as far as the the faith is concerned, uh, mum and dad were very avid and dedicated churchgoers. Mum was mum was the spiritual powerhouse of the family, um, and she really had a, a, a living faith and was determined that her two boys should should also uh, have a living faith. So, really, as far back as I remember, we attended the local church, Anglican Church, the Church of England Church at the time. I I went through the process as one does of um, uh becoming a, a a young church of england christian in australia in the in the we're talking you know in the 1960s and um yes uh, i i was a server so it was an anglican church that was came more from the higher tradition so the minister was robed the the servers who assisted him were robed i was one of the servers i was robed and i've got some photos of when i was a young lad standing next to the minister um I remember. I remember at the time, I was always grateful for having gone through that process because it's really an equipping process. Um, uh, at the time, I was learning. I was really acquiring the equipment of having a faith without it all coming together. In fact, I remember being a young lad from the country of New South Wales and hearing this Church of England service every Sunday that was in, you know, 1662 service in uh, Shakespearean English. And, you know, when you when you grow up in New South Wales and you hear language like, we do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting not in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies and so forth. You sit there scratching your head. I mean, I thought a manifold was part of a car, for example, and <laughs> and so I really, <laughs> I really struggled. Um, 
but thou art always the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. And property, again, the use of words like property, um, in Australia we have huge properties. They're pieces of land that you run thousands of cattle on. So, you know, that experience of growing up, it, it wasn't – I wasn't acquiring a faith that at the time meant a lot to me, but I was acquiring information, you know, equipment. And later on, uh, at, at the right time, it came together. So I was always grateful to my my mum and dad for – for giving me that uh, that training, um, because I didn't come from an unchurched family, and I hear some marvelous stories of sudden, you know, coming to faith from people who are unchurched. Well, that wasn't my story. It's my my, my story of faith has been more uh, stages on a journey, I think, rather than this massive moment of realization. So before yeah, so university, were there, yeah, before university, were there were there any particularly significant experiential moments, or is it just this building of the foundations? Um, do we were you part of a youth group where there was um, active spirituality, or yeah, in our church, it was more a question of going to church and then having Sunday school. So you were taught, but there wasn't a dynamic youth group. Um, I was confirmed. You know, obviously, I had I went through infant baptism, um, and then uh, confirmation in the Anglican tradition, of course, comes around the age of eleven. And at that stage, we have a process of, of training and teaching and 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 a statement of faith at that stage. Um, so that was a key moment for me, of course. Um, because it wasn't really a living faith, I, I, I drifted away at different points, but then I came back from time to time. So in the latter part of my schooling, I was sent away to a boarding school for two years and I was miserable there. They were two of the most unhappy years of my life because I, I, I was coming from a I was coming from a, a lifestyle where I lived in a small country town, but we had a beach house. And so for me, um, life was small it was very personal but it was also a lot of surfing uh, uh so it was very free as well and so i was sent away to this school that felt as if i was being incarcerated and and i was miserable for those two years but it was very good for my spiritual journey you know suffering produces reflection and i reflected a lot and it was during those two years that thanks to the good advice and guidance of the of the chaplain who was at the school um i had another key moment of uh, of realization and, and reflection that was pretty significant on my faith journey when I was about 18. Right. And then university, presumably, therefore, away from home. And so, where did you go and what did you study for university? Yeah, so <clears throat> I went to, um, I traveled south from Wingham to Sydney, as I say, a distance of about five hours travel. I went to Sydney University, which is one of the old red brick type universities um lovely university in fact it was australia it's australia's oldest university i studied modern languages um i was good at school i was good at history and the languages so i i studied both actually my degree was uh well i read um french uh, language and literature i also decided to do an asian language as well as the european language so i chose indonesian and i i, I did a major in that as well and at the same time i was doing various history subjects as well so they were my great loves um they, they were the years of the vietnam war and um <clears throat> the and it were that these were the years socially that were fascinating because it was the time of the great social revolution really uh, taking place in the west triggered by um, all kinds of revolutions, moral revolution, uh, political revolution, the Vietnam War triggered a lot of this. And uh, and so uh, it was during my time as a university student that I went on my first overseas trip to New Guinea, which is an amazing country. 
and um, I had a job on a, on a mining, uh, a Japanese mining exploration camp right up in the hills, way away from uh, the nearest town. I was the only uh, foreigner there. Uh, there were New Guinean villages around, but I was the only foreigner. The Japanese who were based there had gone off on holidays, and um, the only other foreigners within um, view were two missionary families. And so again, I met these missionary families. They were very hospitable. They both invited me to dinner. We talked about all kinds of things, including faith matters. And again, that was another key stage on the journey. So um, I, I, in a country like New Guinea, um, you have an enormous amount of time for reflection. Uh, you're in the middle of the mountains. It's absolutely marvelous. But the big questions of life come to you as you as you look out and you see the mist gathering on the hilltops and you see uh, you see amazing cultural differences around you so it really triggers your reflective processes and uh, and those reflective processes move beyond how did you know how did the trees, trees go it was really you know the big questions of life why am I here who am I um, what does God want of me so that was another key moment on, on my spiritual journey my trip to New Guinea and um, yeah, I suppose they would be the three big um, moments in my formative years, my confirmation, uh, boarding school and the New Guinean experience, but all within a context of being modelled a living faith by my mother, to whom I am eternally uh, grateful for that. She was, she was a profoundly uh, spiritual Christian person. Um, and, you know, she, she was very gifted, very artistic, very musical, very good writer. She, um, uh, she wrote poetry and some of her most beautiful poetry is, is Christian poetry. So, yeah, I, I owe a great debt to my mum. So at this point, are we, where are we heading with these modern languages? Do we, is, there a, is there a vocational direction or is what, what's after university? You know, in terms of the studies, um, <clears throat> I can honestly say that I didn't have a sense of direction. Um, I just took what I liked. I, I, at school, I did well at history. I did well at the languages. So it was a logical step to go to university and study languages. Um, then, of course, during the university years, uh, having while I was studying the languages, but also having studied languages, the logical thing was to go to the countries where the languages were spoken. So I went for uh, another university holiday to Indonesia and absolutely immersed myself for three three months, cut myself off from all English-speaking contexts and forced myself to speak Indonesian on a daily basis for three months. And then after um, I finished my degree, my, my undergraduate degree, I then took a gap year I and I came over to Britain first visit but then I went over to France as well um, in order to to do the same thing to cross that bridge of fluency in in, in French as well so um, I had a scholarship to become a teacher and so that was a that was a sort of ticket to to income of course and after my gap year I went back I did the equivalent of a PGCE I then spent three years school teaching and um, I realised that I thoroughly enjoyed that, but I realised I wanted to do further studies. So I then went back to the Australian National University to continue studies. I did uh, I did postgrad studies, I, uh, and I eventually eventually completed a PhD on starting out focusing on the languages. But um, I, I chose to follow the Indonesian path. Indonesian Indonesia is the largest Muslim nation in the world, um, so I learnt Arabic because it's a Muslim nation. I did a major in Arabic. 
and I was working on the linguistic relationships between the two languages. But in order to, to find my data, my professor guided me towards Islamic texts, and so principally the Quran and its commentaries. And so I found as I was, uh, by this stage, my, I had a living Christian faith, but as I was studying the Islamic materials, I was far more interested really in, in the theological issues coming out of it, out of the, the texts, than the prepositions and the nouns and the adverbs and the adjectives and so forth. So I ended up redirecting my studies for my PhD into a study of the Quran, its commentaries, Quranic exegesis, hermeneutics, um, the great commentaries on the Quran from the classical Arabic tradition, but also uh, in Southeast Asia. And my PhD focused on, and a lot of my publishing has been on this, focused on the concept of transmission, that is the transmission of Islamic theological thinking from the Middle East, from the Arab world, to Southeast Asia, with particular reference to the Quran and its commentaries. And so that's that's where I ended up, I, I think, in terms of my education. I came out of a P, the PhD with having written my thesis on that. I published that. And I've since then gone on into a life largely in academia, um, both secular universities and theological colleges, as you know. Yeah. Uh, and you have um, you've got a family. Is the, the family coming along at that kind of stage or is that a bit later that... Family uh, yes. So, so I, I married later. I married at 32. Um, and so my wife and I, we had our both of our children when I was in my 40s, actually. Um, so, yes, I have two two kids, um, a daughter uh, who is 30 and a son who is 22, uh, 23 now. And, um, and so yes, so they came along later. Because you're traveling, because then traveling becomes, obviously, you're not going to be based in Australia for all of your life, as was indicated. Yes, indeed, indeed. So uh, that said, um, the kids came later. So um, we initially were posted immediately after marriage. We were posted to Indonesia for three years. Um, we didn't have children then. We then went on for two years to Israel, where I had a postdoctoral fellowship at the Hebrew University. And again, we didn't have children. But we then had five years back in Australia, where our daughter was born. And then we moved to London to take up the position, as you know, at, at LST or LBC, or as it was then. And that's where my son was born. So my son was born in Britain. My daughter was born in Australia, but moved to Britain when she was very young. And um, yes, so they really, well, my daughter grew up in Britain. Uh, my son spent part of his early years in Britain as well. You say posted. Was that was that through some kind of organisation or how? what, what was the, the mechanism for you going to the Philippines and then to Jerusalem? Uh, yes. So um, I was um, in terms of the initial the initial job in Indonesia, that was part of an Australian government aid program. And the Australian, the Australian government collected a group of academics from the different universities in Australia to form a team to go to one of Indonesia's main universities for institution building, for faculty training. Um, so I was recruited for that, actually. Um, um, I was actually approached about it by somebody who I was working with. Um, and yeah, so, so that was a, a posting of sorts, I suppose. Um, then in being in, in Indonesia after three years, I, I, um, my wife and I decided to move on. And at that stage, a position was advertised for a postdoctoral fellowship in Jerusalem. And that I applied for and I got that. And that was a two-year a two-year appointment um, to conduct research on a research project, which I submitted. 
And the research project was actually a study of classical Islam, but it's impossible to be in that part of the world to be based in Jerusalem and have your mind buried in the 14th century. So, and while I was there, that's when Hamas emerged. Um, and so I, I reorientated my research program away from just focusing on the 14th century to asking the question, how does a group such as Hamas, which is a late 20th century organization, how does it form its political charter based on 7th century texts? Because the Hamas charter is full of references to the Quran and the Hadith. And it's a, it was a very interesting concept. I did a comparative study of Hamas and the Palestine Liberation Organization because they both have charters of similar lengths. One of them, the PLO charter, makes no reference to Quran and Hadith. No, There's no religious speak in it at all. The Hamas charter is full of it. And so that was what my research project was on. Very interesting, actually. I subsequently published that. Um, so they were two good years. And then we went back to Australia for five years yeah. and had, had started uh, having our children. Yes. And then London. So you were at LBC as, is it still LBC when you left? No, it must have just become LST. Yes, it became LST in, I think, uh, 2003. And I, I was here until 2000, the end of 2007. So, right. um, yes, I came, I came at the beginning of 96 when it was very clearly LBC. The change happened in 2003, I think, and uh, end of 2007, it became LST. And at that point, uh, LBC had uh, Islamics Department, uh, or were you the founder of the Islamics Department? How did the, what was the, the nature of LST and that whole area? Yes, well, the the, prin the principal of the time, who was approaching the end of his tenure, um, he, in the early 1990s, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, he anticipated that the next big issue for the church was going to be Islam and Christian Muslim engagement, uh, which was quite really prophetic, actually, because he was absolutely right in terms of what then happened in the 90s and subsequently. Um, so he, he raised... Or is this Peter Cottrell. Peter Cottrell. Peter Cottrell. Yeah. And he um, somehow or other, he was, he, he, he conceived of this plan. Uh, it's quite an amazing story, really. Um, and I'll just give you the short version. But he conceived of this plan of, of establishing a center for the study of Islam and for, for Christian engagement with Islam. And of course, the situation arose, the question arose, how do we fund this? And out of the blue, somebody contacted him one day and said, that apparently there was a an elderly lady um, who had recently passed away and who had been largely living on the smell of an oil rag for years and putting her money away and in, and had hundreds of thousands of pounds stashed away in different bank accounts and this money was available for funding Christian activities and there was an expression of interest in the concept of something engaging with Islam so to cut a long story short um, these funds or part of these funds were, were donated to LBC, um, and they were used to establish to establish the Guthrie Centre, which of course became the home at the time for the research department, which I gather is still there, and the Islamics department. Um, and so, I, I um, as the building was opened at the end of 1995, advertisements were put out for for a director. I applied from Australia and I got the job, and so I came over in the beginning of 1996 with my uh, wife and little daughter in, a, in the middle of a very cold, snowy winter, and uh, set set myself up in Britain. And we had what 12 wonderful years there. 
and for, and for a time it was a, a really crucial place in the development of Christian Islamic studies, wasn't it? The the LBC Center. Indeed, indeed it was. Indeed it was. Indeed it was. Um, <clears throat> for the first few years, we were setting ourselves up and establishing ourselves. The late 90s was a time of increasing church interest, but there had not been any big event that captured everybody's attention. And then, of course, 9-11 uh, happened in September 2001, and all of a sudden, Islam burst onto the scene. The question everybody was asking out in the secular world, the most common question was, why do they hate us, actually? Um, within the church, the question was, well, what is Islam? How do we respond to Islam? How do we engage with Islam? And so our centre and others, we were not the only ones, of course, there are other very good people involved in this, um, responded by saying, okay, well, we need to prepare the church to engage with Islam, with Muslims of different types, to have different kinds of engagements. And um, so the L LBC Centre was one such initiative that happened around then. Another initiative that happened a couple of years before your your dad was involved in, Brian Nell, um, uh, involved in the establishment <clears throat> of um, the of, a, of, a, of an organisation to gather uh, missionaries who were doing mission work to Muslims in Britain together. Um, there were new conferences. There were all kinds of things going on. It was a really dynamic period. And I think probably the best example I can give you of how our centre um, really was responding to to a need was I remember in 2003 I think it was we decided to have a have a day where we would involve all our students at L LBC at LST it was then I think who were doing postgraduate level study on subjects connected with Islam and there were 23 people there 23 people doing masters and doctorates in Islam related subjects so that really showed you that. That centre at the time was addressing a, a huge need, as were other centres. There was some very good, there was some very good work being done elsewhere too. Yeah. Uh, here's a question for you, which won't have a short answer. Um, how do you reflect on your your deep engagement with Islam and your own spiritual life? Um, how do the two interrelate with each other? If you know, they must do. Yes. <clears throat> You know, a question I'm often asked is, um, well, I, I've, I've spoken, I often speak to Muslim audiences. I work with Muslims. I have Muslim friends. I co-write with Muslims. And when I speak to Muslim audiences, the question I most, of, most commonly are, am asked is, if you, know, you clearly know so much about Islam, how come you're not a Muslim? Um, now, it's a tricky question <laughs> because... The fact is that I have my my spiritual testimony, which I've briefly shared with you, and um, you know, there's much about Islam which which I find interesting. I did a PhD on the study of Islam. There've been some great Islamic minds down the centuries, um, but at the end of the day, I don't find the Islamic package to be persuasive. Um, I've looked closely at both faiths. I've looked closely at quite a number of faiths, and. Having looked closely at a number of faiths, I could not be a religious pluralist because religious pluralists generally say, well, all religions lead to the same divine destination. And I don't believe that for a moment. I actually think that's lazy thinking. When you, when you hold the religions against each other, there are some significant foundational differences. So you have to make a choice. What do you believe in? And for me, the Christian message has something that leaves the others way behind. Now, that said... 
what what is shared with our Muslim friends, for example, is a search for God. So I don't I don't say Christians and Muslims find the same divine answer at all, but we are seeking a similar answer. Muslims are on the search for God. I just think that they've got the wrong answer, and I think it's upon us as Christians to share our answers. But my Muslim friends, they they generally want to 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 live and to please God. Um, and they have there are parts of Islam that very much resemble um, biblical teaching, so that they provide us with some very good building blocks for for a relationship. So we share much in the search. Um, it's just in the answers there we have some significant differences, and we mustn't paper over those differences either. They are significant. Yeah. And what about your experience of church uh, through the decades um, as a, as an Islamist? How do you find you are received by uh, your fellow Christians? How do you integrate as as Peter Adele into the church? Yes, um, it's been it's been a different set of experiences, Matt. Really, um, <clears throat> Islam has somewhat gone off the boil. Um, for general Western society and the church over the last five to seven years with developments such as COVID and the Ukraine war and so forth. Islam is less discussed now than it was in the first decade of the 20th century, 21st century. Um, so um, the level of interest that was palpable in the churches in the first 10 years of the 21st century is often it translates to a kind of curiosity these days or a sort of some people just don't understand why I would be interested in, in that, in, in something like Islam. Others are genuinely interested. Um, some uh, find Islam to be threatening and, um, you know, they carry very, uh, very negative baggage and very negative stereotypes. Others are curious. Um, so I really find very mixed views among the churches, and some are just not interested. Um, in my church, for example, I have people that they know what I do and they talk to me, but they're just not interested really in asking me at all, whereas others ask me about my work and uh, they really want to know. So it's a very different set of experiences. You find some very hardline views, but then you find some very, very open views as well, um, different experiences. Well, I think we've covered uh, quite a lot of stuff um, in roughly the half an hour that we have for these faculty face stories. So thank you very much for sharing uh, with us all. And that is Peter Riddell's faculty face story.